Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelen Zinzi, Tabiso Luhoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... Burundi dismisses criticism of its security forces and Somalia beefs up security after foiling a terror plot. In economics, Bank of Africa Mali offers shares as part of Boris listing and in sports news, FIFA's presidential candidates to be grilled by EU lawmakers. But first up, the news with Onel Nsinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Now looking at your news update. Authorities in Somalia have heightened security after preventing an attack that was to be launched from two sea boats on the beach of Mogadishu Airport by al-Shabaab militants. The heightening of security comes at a time when the African Union mission in Mogadishu is planning to increase its troops from 22,000 to 30,000 at the beginning of next year. James Shimanyula has more. The situation remains calm but tense in the Somali capital Mogadishu, where the African Union peacekeepers have foiled an attack that was to be carried out by al-Shabaab militants. According to Opio Ododa, spokesman for the African Union mission in Mogadishu, al-Shabaab using two speedboats fired volleys on the beach of Mogadishu airport. Ododa says African peacekeepers opened heavy fire, forcing the militants to speed away, and when pursued, they disappeared, prompting the heightening of security in the area. Human rights advocates in the United States have called for an investigation following the Nigerian army's raid on a Shiite sect in which hundreds of people were reportedly killed. Details of the weakened violence in Zaria have been slow to emerge, with the three attacked areas of the northern town on lockdown, with no one allowed to enter or leave. The United States calls on the government of Nigeria to quickly, credibly and transparently investigate these events in Zaria and hold to account any individual found to have committed crimes. The army said troops attacked sites in Zaria after 500 Shiites blocked the convoy of Nigeria's army chief and tried to kill him on Saturday. Signing of a United Nations brokered agreement between Libya's warring factions planned for Wednesday has been delayed to Thursday because of logistical problems. Delegates from Libya's two rival governments were scheduled to sign the accord that calls for unity government and a ceasefire. However, opponents are rejecting the deal and it remains unclear how much support it will have to be implemented on the ground. 
The ruling ANC party in South Africa says it is convinced that the majority of South Africans are against the campaign calling for President Jacob Zuma's resignation. The party was responding to the demonstrations held in Johannesburg, Pretoria and Cape Town in support of the Zuma Must Fall campaign. It was sparked by the exing of former finance minister Nklantlanene, which led to a sharp depreciation of the rent and a slump in the market. ANC spokesperson Zizikotwa. the fact that uh, President Zuma has seriously considered and uh, reflected on his decision and actually made a U-turn on the Emir decision, appreciating the public concern and the public outcry. And finally, a hung jury has prompted a Baltimore trial judge in the United States to declare mistrial in the first case against an officer charged in the death of Freddie Gray. Gray's death led to riots in the city earlier this year. Officer William Porter was charged with manslaughter, assault and recklessness, while the state accused him of brutal indifference to Gray's life. Sean Bryce Pease has more. The jurors, made up of seven black and five white members, deliberated for more than 16 hours over three days but failed to reach consensus, raising questions about the other pending prosecutions against a further five officers linked to the death of Mr. Gray. Judge Barry Williams declared the mistrial after it became clear jurors were deadlocked. Protesters gathered outside the courthouse immediately expressed their dissatisfaction, chanting, No justice! No peace. Judge Williams has set an administrative hearing for Thursday to set a new trial date. The jury's failure to reach a verdict leaves prosecutors to decide whether to try the officer a second time. Channel Africa News, I'm Oni Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. Burundi has dismissed criticism of its security forces, saying they acted professionally after rebels attacked military bases in the capital, Bujumbura. In the latest flare-up, gunmen attacked military bases last Friday, and the UN Human Rights Chief, Zaid Arad al-Hussein, said the authorities there responded with house searches, arrests, and alleged summary executions. The fighting killed almost 90 people. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. For an nth time, the government of Burundi is attacking the Belgian government. In the statement issued on this Tuesday, read by Philip Nzobanaliba, the government secretary and spokesman, Burundi has accused the Belgian deputy prime minister and foreign affairs minister Didier Reinders of demonizing the Burundian security forces, ignoring the historic responsibility of Belgium in the current crisis in the country. For Philip Nzobanaliba, the Burundian army has portrayed a high professionalism in the response to the criminal attack. The government of Burundi noted and appreciated that the international community, starting with the UN Security Council and the African Union, strongly condemned the perpetrators of these attacks while reminding the urgency of dialogue to achieve a lasting peace and prevent further violence. However, the government of Burundi is surprised by the amalgam used by the Belgian government through statements made by 
Vice Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister Didier Rendens, who, while condemning the violence of those that he describes as a silence, condemned without evidence Burundian security forces for using disproportionate force in their response, as if Belgium knew the nature, quality, and quantity of the weapons used by terrorists to affirm the disproportion of the response. The Belgian minister goes further, urging the UN Security Council and the Peace and Security Council of the African Union to take measures that are needed. It clearly sounds as if Belgium ignores that Burundi is a sovereign state with capable defense and security forces in their spirit of national unity, inspired by the Arusha Accord, unlike those of previous regimes, and which are thus able to secure the population and the institutions of the country, as evidenced by quickly and efficiently thwarting the coup of May 2015. For the government spokesman, those who accuse the Burundian army have forgotten a similar response to the recent terrorist attacks in France and Belgium, which mobilized the highest security arsenal in the hand-down of the terrorists. For the government of Burundi, Belgium stands as a real obstacle to any reconciliation efforts of the people of Burundi. While dealing with the attacks of this December 11, 2015, security forces, as everywhere in the world, intervened quickly with their proven professionalism even beyond Burundian borders. For those who speak of disproportionate response, it should be recalled that Burundi security forces are faced by a situation similar to the one just experienced the French and Belgian police during the attacks against the Bataclan Theatre and the other public places like a string of cafes and restaurants in Paris. Not only the entire French police were mobilized with all the means within its reach, but also the Brussels police and the army have deployed their full arsenal in Molenbeek looking for a single terrorist who is yet to be neutralized. One may wonder what the Belgian police would have done had it been confronted with the same situation as that of Burundi. For the government of Burundi, had it not been restraint and professionalism of law enforcers, the situation would have been more dramatic. It would therefore be irrelevant to talk of sending foreign forces in Burundi while the latter is the first African supplier of peacekeeping troops. Those advocating for sending troops in Burundi hide many other intentions. The government of Burundi requests the Belgium to remember its historical responsibility for the past and present of Burundi, its former colony, and instead of standing as an accuser, Belgium should rather play an advocacy role for Burundi within the European Union. Belgian government taking position in Burundi conflict and for individuals or groups of involved in the current violence is a real obstacle to any reconciliation effort of the Burundian people and the Belgium will bear full responsibilities. Philip Nzaunaliba stressed that the inter-Burundian dialogue which involves Burundians from both inside and diaspora has already started as the international community still insists for an inclusive dialogue that would involve all stakeholders. The government of Burundi is quite convinced that the perpetrators of these attacks, those who provide them with weapons and support them financially, are those who have no other purpose than to undermine the dialogue. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Mankukira reporting from Bujumbura. Somalia has heightened security after preventing an attack that was to be launched from two boats in Mogadishu airport by al-Shabaab militants. This comes at a time when the African Union mission in Mogadishu is planning to increase its troops from 22,000 to 30,000 at the beginning of next year. James Shimangula sent us this report. The situation remains calm but tense in the Somali capital Mogadishu, where the African Union peacekeepers have foiled an attack 
that was to be carried out by Al-Shabaab militants. According to Opio Ododa, spokesman for the African Union mission in Mogadishu, Al-Shabaab using two speedboats fired volleys on the beach of Mogadishu airport. Ododa says African peacekeepers opened heavy fire, forcing the militants to speed away, and when pursued, they disappeared, prompting the heightening of security in the area. I found African Union spokesman Opio Ododa in Mogadishu to get more details on a plan to heighten security in Mogadishu. We are in the process of increasing surveillance intelligence. But how many? Because now we have about 22,000. Given that um, you have been in Mogadishu, thwarted uh, a lot of attacks, you think how many forces, to the best of your knowledge, that would contain Al-Shabaab apart from the 22,000? You remember when the numbers were increased from 22,000 to Al militants have been unleashing terrorist attacks on African Union troops over the past three years, causing deadly attacks. Acting as terrorists, Al-Shabaab have been causing fear to the Mogadishu government and its residents. Their action experts say borders on extremism, which is a belief but can also be put in militant action. At this juncture, it may be imperative to pose the following question. Is it possible to eliminate extremism, let alone militancy, the bracket in which Al-Shabaab falls? To get a deeper answer, I spoke to Professor Peter Kagwanja, an independent expert on the whole of Africa. I posed the same question. Is it possible to eliminate Al-Shabaab? In other words, is it possible to eliminate militancy? and violent extremism. That report by James Shimanyuda. Conflict and natural disasters are pushing an unprecedented number of people from their homes. This is according to the High Commissioner of the United Nations Refugee Agency, Antonio Guterres, speaking at the agency's annual high-level dialogue on protection challenges. Guterres said from the Middle East to Africa, wars and conflict had resulted in a record number of displaced people. While in parts of Asia, floods, storms, cyclones and droughts were destroying more and more people's homes and livelihoods. Veronica Reeves reports. Our world today is at the crossroads. This juncture is defined by two mega problems, a seemingly uncontrollable multiplication of violent conflicts and the pervasive and growing effects of natural hazards and climate change. UNHCR's High Commissioner Antonio Gutierrez there speaking at the 8th Annual Dialogue on Protection Challenges, which got underway in Geneva Wednesday. With the number of people displaced by conflict and violence at its highest level since the Second World War and the three hottest years on record taking place over the last decade, Mr. Gutierrez said the humanitarian community was being pushed to the brink. The moment has come for a radical change in international efforts to address displacement. As humanitarians, we are supposed to be the first responders, but we are at breaking point. 
The high commissioner said that for too long, the international community had treated the two phenomena, conflict and climate change, as completely separate issues. However, the time had come to recognize the profound link between them, including the ways in which environmental hazards fuel tension and violence. He went on to say that the need for better political leadership was evident. The fact that we are seeing so many new crises breaking out without any of the old ones getting resolved clearly illustrates the lack of capacity and political will to end conflict, let alone to prevent it. And the result is an alarming proliferation of unpredictability and impunity. Taking the podium, U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zedrad al-Hussein, echoed Mr. Gutierrez's call for stronger leadership. Discrimination and inequality is, in many cases, not just stemming from structural causes, but very weak and mediocre leadership. In so many cases, the disgraceful leadership on the part of some and trampling over the human rights obligations that countries have vis-à-vis their own citizens is a central cause for the instability that we see. Zed said there was a need to protect the human rights of citizens at all times, including prior to displacement, as a key priority. Veronica Reeves, United Nations. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I love you. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Africa is lobbying for more access to duty-free global markets for agricultural products, the removal of agricultural subsidies for rich nations, and domestic support to cushion exports from domestic markets from competition. The continent's trade ministers say success for them at the ongoing ministerial conference in Nairobi will mean achieving a trading system that levels the playing playing field and helps developing countries lift people out of poverty through trade. Sarah Kimani reports. Africa comes to Nairobi with high expectations. African trade ministers will be hoping to break a 14-year deadlock on talks between them. The 2001 Doha talks collapsed after disagreements emerged between the two groups over the broad issue of agriculture. Joshua Setipa is Lesotho's trade minister and also the chairperson of the African group here in Nairobi. Our expectations are that this conference will be one step forward towards fulfilling the Doha promise. And the Doha promise for Africa was that first development is going to be the heart 
of the multilateral trading system so that we can at least level the playing field so that African countries, most of which are less developed countries, have a fighting chance of ever being able to be fully integrated into the multilateral trading system. They want rich nations to cut subsidies on agriculture. Payments to farmers in rich countries currently stand at $1 billion a day. The subsidies, according to poor countries, skew trade in favor of rich nations. Satipa again. Millions of African cotton farmers are victims of high subsidies by developed countries. For example, the U.S. subsidizes its cotton sector very, very much, and that undermines our ability as African cotton producers to be able to compete fairly in the market. We're also looking at a reform, at a reform of some of the WTO laws and provisions that we believe are biased against African countries or developing countries and limit their ability to fully take advantage of what opportunities lie uh, within the multilateral trading system. We're also looking for removal of obstacles to full market access. They argue that the 2001 Doha Development Agenda has failed to live up to its promise of using trade to end poverty. Rob Davis is South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister. We support a small package that would prioritize issues of concern to least developed countries, strengthen provisions of special and differential treatment, and achieve an outcome on some important agricultural issues as a stepping stone to further work on the DDA mandate after uh, MC10. I thank you. While developed countries want a fresh start to the talks, developing countries remain adamant that the Doha development agenda must be concluded. They objected to the introduction of new items here in Nairobi. They argue anything short of the Doha agenda will be protecting the interests of rich nations at the expense of poor ones. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. 2015 was a tough year in the news for Zimbabwe. There was widespread hunger caused by a crippling drought. And then there was Cecil, the world's most famous lion that put the country on the global map, but for the wrong reasons. As Shingai Nyoka reports, the year did have some moments of triumph. 2015 began buoyantly. Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe returned from the African Union annual summit triumphant. He'd just been elected the AU chairperson. This came on the heels of his election to the Southern African Development Community SADC chair. The jubilation marred by a now famous fall that intensified concerns about the state of his health. The veteran ruler brushed aside concerns going on to address supporters on his feet for over an hour during a lavish bash to mark his 91st birthday weeks later. Political year capped by three cabinet reshuffles in nine months and increasing the number of ministers. The appointment of Patrick Joao, the president's nephew, to the empowerment ministry marked a shift to hardline policies. Indigenization Minister Patrick Joao. That's it. There is no discussion about indigenization. The component of economic empowerment of Zimbabwe is non-negotiable. This as the economy tumbled. Government halved its 2015 growth forecast to 1.5%. A constitutional court ruling allowed employers to fire workers on three months' notice, ending previously cumbersome payouts of a month's salary for every year worked. The Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Union estimated that 20,000 people lost their jobs in a single month. A Sino-Zimbabwe cotton worker was one of them. No 
People who were retrenched earlier this year received $4,000, but we'll be lucky to get $1,500. We're not political people by nature, but this forces us to interpret this as political. Government has to intervene. The Zimbabwe National Chamber of Commerce CEO Chris Mugaga weighed in. You see almost 35% of companies in Zimbabwe, they are owing their staff salaries of at least one year going backwards. And you know for sure that those companies will at no point afford to pay those salaries. So what is the solution? It's for the labor to be flexible enough. To stop the hemorrhaging, government amended the laws. Hope returned to the economy when Africa's richest man, Aliko Dangote, arrived pledging to invest $400 million in a cement plant. So what we need to do is that we will be bringing uh, cement here and taking coal, but we want to set up an integrated cement plant here that, uh, you know, is actually maybe bigger than all the, uh, you know, plants that you have currently. Economic year was capped by the visit of the Chinese President Xi Jinping. The two countries inked 12 deals in infrastructural development, construction, and energy worth at least 2 billion US dollars. Chinese President Xi Jinping. We agreed that both countries should make full use of the political trust and economic complementarity between us. I have full confidence in our bilateral relations. But the economy remains dire. Drought has left 1.5 million people hungry and in need of food aid. For the first time in recent memory, the Kariba Dam has dropped to levels which have reduced power generation in both Zimbabwe and Zambia. Blackouts have increased to up to 18 hours a day. In the global headlines, though, Zimbabwe will be remembered for two issues. The disappearance of human rights activist and anti-Mugabe demonstrator Itai Zamara. He was allegedly abducted out of a barber shop in March. The country also made bigger headlines after the slaughter of the famous lion Cecil. The poaching incident brought attention to the million-dollar hunting industry. Permanent Secretary for the Environment, Prince Mupajirio. The process of coming up with a quota. It is not a thumbsack process. We are looking at uh, the conservation efforts that we have. How many animals do we have? Um, uh, how sustainable is it to, to keep them? You know, they breed. They get to a number which cannot be sustainable. Where someone has done something illegal, you can't condemn um, to say sport hunting is, 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 is bad. Wildlife was again in the headlines when officials say over 70 elephants were killed in cyanide poisoning. The year that began on a high note has ended subdued, but the rains have begun to fall, and there's hope that 2016 will bring revival. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. A demonstration outside the gates of parliament in Cape Town and later joined another demonstration at the company gardens in support of the Zuma must fall campaign. Archbishop Emeritus daughter Desmond Tutu Mpoh Tutu addressed the crowds. Lula Mamakia reports. The Zuma Must Fall campaign was sparked by the axing of former finance minister Ntlantla Nene, which led to sharp depreciation of the rent. Organizers say they have the best interests of the country at heart. Some supporters say they are dissatisfied with the current events in the country and want to see change. Others were, however, disappointed that the demonstration was not a representative of the country's population. 
I, I somehow don't think that this is quite what I expected. I find that it's not really representative of the entire population. Why I thought it might be, I don't know. And uh, I don't know that this is going to do very much for reconciliation. I think it's good for people to stand up and say how we feel. I'm just hoping that the whole of South Africa can raise and, and make the same statements because together we can make a difference. If, if we're a minority that feel this way, it doesn't mean anything. I think it's really important for all South Africans to unite at this point in time. I think uh, enough is enough with Suma and his... Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu's daughter Mpo addressed the gathering. She said South Africans prayed for apartheid to end and their prayers may also be heard at this time. We who are people of faith are audacious. Who is, who is Jacob Zuma? If we can tell God, please bless. Do you not think we can tell Jacob Zuma? Please go. Meanwhile, the ANC says the majority of South Africans have appreciated the U-turn made by President Jacob Zuma by reshuffling former finance minister David Van Royen after three days in office. The party was responding to the demonstrations held in Johannesburg and Cape Town on Zuma Must Fall campaign. ANC spokesperson Zizi Godwa says the attendance at today's demonstrations indicate that the majority of South Africans disagree with the campaign. If you look at the numbers of people that come out, is that the majority of South Africans have appreciated the fact that uh, President Zuma has seriously considered and uh, reflected on his decision and actually made a U-turn on the Indian decision, appreciating the public concern and the public outcry. Organizers say today's gathering will be a catalyst for a big national protest march when Parliament hosts the State of the Nation address in February next year. Lula Mamaja in Cape Town. It's 8.29 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Onel Ntinti. Mozambique's Renamo Opposition Party, Afoso Tlakama, plans new offensive. Burundi dismisses criticism of its security forces, saying they acted professionally after rebels attacked military bases in the capital, Bujumbura, and human rights advocates in the United States call for an investigation following the Nigerian army's raid on a Shiite sect in which hundreds of people were reportedly killed. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilintzinzi. Thank you, Onele. South African President Jacob Zuma says true reconciliation cannot be achieved simply by forgiving and forgetting, but it must be accompanied by a collective resolve to deal with poverty, landlessness and inequality confronting the black majority. President Zuma was speaking at the commemoration of the National Reconciliation Day in Port Elizabeth yesterday. Debo Mugobo was there. After a week of fierce criticism from opposition parties, 
and some civil society organizations following his cabinet reshuffle. President Zuma was welcomed with a thunderous applause in the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro, presiding over a nation that is still afflicted by its historical divisions. The president was here to ask South Africans to forge reconciliation and social cohesion. He says true reconciliation can only be achieved by acknowledging the wrongs of the past and willing to help those who were once denied opportunities by the apartheid system. True reconciliation cannot be achieved simply by forgiving and forgetting the historical injustice of the past. To ensure success, the reconciliation project must be accompanied by a deliberate collective resolve to deal with the material basis of social divisions such as poverty, landlessness, as well as economic inequality. If we fail to do that, we will not succeed in uniting all our people. Today, South Africans were expected to celebrate their unity in diversity and the coming of age of the new post-apartheid order. But this proved not to be the case as only few white compatriots attended the celebrations. And President Zuma admitted that the country still has many challenges to achieve true reconciliation. We must readily accept that we still have many challenges which undermine the achievement of total reconciliation of our nation. Top among these are poverty, inequality and unemployment which still persist. He used the occasion to thank those who were oppressed for many years but never showed a sign of revenge and instead focused on the reconstruction and development of the country. Let me thank the black community of South Africa. Despite the terrible injustices meted out against them, the black majority made the choice not to seek revenge. They chose to build a country that belongs to all who live in it, black and white. This was not a sign of weakness. It was a bold and courageous act of patriotism which puts the interests of our country first. And some of those who attended the celebration say although they haven't done anything wrong to their white counterparts, they are more than willing to work with them to build a non-racial and progressive country. We are more than ready to reconcile. Unfortunately, the people that we are reconciling with, the white community of South Africa, they don't want to come into the party. We've been persuading them to do that. Unfortunately, they don't seem to embrace that invitation. But we are going to continue to do this exercise until they realize they are part of South Africa. So we've started this thing in 1994. Ever since Nelson Mandela took over, they said you must reconcile. You still remember Mandela said, we'll fight against black domination, we'll fight against white domination. We keep to that promise, we prepare to die for that quote of Mandela. And Johann Smith wants to see a country where black and white live together as fellow countrymen and women. But is he prepared to reconcile with his black counterparts? As always, most of my firemen, well, most of my friends in any case, well, half of them is black. So, yeah, I'm prepared to reconcile. That's what we need to do in any case. Everyone is born in South Africa, so it's time to start doing something about it. Stop this black and white thing. Meanwhile, President Zuma also thanked the South African Council of Churches for its nationwide campaign called The South Africa We Pray For, which seeks to reconcile the nation. He also commended the former South African National Defense Force conscripts who are working with the June 16 Foundation to help forge the reconciliation project. I am Tebu Mokobo in Port Elizabeth. 
A security situation in Afghanistan has worsened over the last year, although humanitarian access has improved in the country. United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator for Afghanistan, Mark Bowden, says 2015 saw a marked increase in violence, which has forced an estimated 200,000 Afghans from their homes. Bowden explains how things have changed over the last year in the country. The nature of conflict has changed in Afghanistan uh, with the withdrawal of the international troops or the reduction of international troops. The way in which the conflict is being fought has changed quite a lot. There's far more ground fighting taking place, but also the conflict has spread to different parts of the country. So what we found is that in 2014, there were three administrative centres that had been overrun by insurgent groups, whereas in the last year, uh, we've seen 23 administrative centres overrun. So that gives you some sense that more districts are under threat. Also, because the fighting has changed, we've also seen a number of more casualties. There were almost 8,500 civilian deaths. We are actually getting better access. There also appears to be better recognition by all parties to the conflict that it is important to uh, meet humanitarian need wherever it exists and that I think the humanitarian organizations have also established a reputation for acting impartially and neutrally in relation to the conflict. And it's that respect for international humanitarian law or the increased respect for humanitarian law that makes me more positive that despite a worsening situation, we are able to get more support through. The bombing of the MSF hospital in Kunduz a few months ago was a story that we all followed very closely. Can you tell us how that event impacted your work and also how it affected you and your staff personally? I was with a colleague from MSF and ICRC the night before the, the bombing and we were talking about the challenges of working in that environment. So on a personal basis, I think I was devastated by the impact of the attack, both on the lives of very courageous people who were working in a very difficult environment to make sure that medical assistance was provided. Uh, The impact on the humanitarian community is one of concern. There needs to be better recognition of health facilities and others and recognition of international humanitarian law where even if there are people who have been combatants, if they're receiving treatment, they are hors de combat and they're outside. They're no longer should be considered uh, legitimate targets. That was Mark Bowden, United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator for Afghanistan, speaking to UN Radio's Veronica Reeves. It is 8.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Every family in Tunisia will have access to the internet in their home within five years. As according to Tunisian Minister of Communication Technologies and Digital Economy, Numani Ferry, he explains why Tunisia is investing so heavily in technology. Since uh, the 50s, we decided to put one-third of our budget in education, which, which really brought us um, mostly educated communities, and our people in Tunisia are relatively well ed- educated compared to a lot of other countries. Because of that, they adopted technology, uh, very early on, and uh, because of that, we proposed in 1998 the World Summit of Information Technology, which happened in 2003 in uh, Geneva, then in 2005 in Tunis, 
and we agreed to empower our youth with technology. And so we did in Tunisia, and so they adopted it, and they felt empowered, so they used it to express themselves to topple the, uh, the government who was not really democratic. But more importantly, after the Arab Spring, they played also the role of consensus builders because they were everywhere in Parliament, sitting in, in, in the back seat on the all, every single room in Parliament while we are writing the constitutions, and they were tweeting every single word we were saying. So I can tell you that's a very strong to to build consensus. The issue of the question of digital gap is something that concerns all countries. Could you give us an, an overview of the situation in Tunisia and some projects that you're launching? To, to so there are, there are three gaps. Gap number one is the digital gap between the regions, towns and villages and rural areas, but also between Tunisians and American and Tunisians and North American and North European or South Koreans. There is also another gap, which is the age gap or what they call the generation gap where our children are 21st century literate and the third gap is the gender gap. So what we are doing about it? First, we need access. We have decided that over the next five years, every single family, every single household will have internet at home. Like we, government decided to bring electricity everywhere, we decided to bring internet everywhere. It's better to subsidize uh, internet than subsidize other stuff. So that's on the infrastructure side. On the content side, uh, a human infrastructure, if you like, we believe that uh, our kids need to have access to the same good material that any other kid in the world. Therefore, we need to build the digital schools. And the third objective is to get the government out of the way of business and let business people make what they create value. Therefore, we are going to go paperless from now until 2020. If you add to that our effort in making sure that the Internet is secure, I'm relatively confident that we are going the right direction. If one can say the, the flip side, so to say, to, to all the benefits that are brought by ICTs is the fact that a lot of extremist groups like Daesh are using ICTs and social media to recruit foreign terrorist fighters. What can governments do? What can your ministry do to, to counter this menace? So in the normal economy or the normal uh, life, there are countries and there are borders and there is uh, uh, etc. In the digital world, there is no country. Everybody can be anywhere. What we need to do, however, we need to make sure that the Internet is safe. How we need to make it safe, we need to apply the rule of law. But we need to make sure when applying the rule of law that we stay true to our values, which are human rights values. So it's not because we need to take off uh, a page uh, because it has uh, some material from Daesh or etc. So freedom of expression is at stake here as well. Rule of law first together with, uh, with human rights. That's the number one. Number two, uh, it's not the only reaction to Daesh, and it can't be country-specific. It has to be multi-country. And in order to be multi-country, we need to have a platform for counter-messaging platform. We need to flood the Internet by good uh, messages rather than these obscure messages from Daesh. And to be frank with you, it boils down to education. We need to educate our other people using the Internet. And like we used to do uh, programs to eradicate uh, illiteracy, now we need to do programs to eradicate digital illiteracy and to teach people how to make best use of the web.
That was Numani Ferry, Tunisian Minister of Communication, Technologies and Digital Economy, speaking to UN Radio's Isabel Dupuy. A select few South African fans of the Star Wars movie franchise got to see the long-awaited seventh installment on Tuesday at a special premiere in Johannesburg. Star Wars, The Force Awakens, is expected to become the highest-grossing film of all time with sold-out screenings all over the world. Jacques Stengamp was at the premiere. For nearly 40 years, the Star Wars movies have been part of generation after generation. It's reputed that the original movies, released respectively in 1977, 1980 and 1983, saved the movie industry from collapsing. Original cast members Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill, who portrays the iconic Luke Skywalker, are all back for another epic adventure in The Force Awakens. Force is strong in my family. My father has it. I have it. My sister has it. You have that power too. The South African premiere was held on Tuesday night at the Sarkinikor complex in the Eastgate shopping mall. Starkinikor CEO Wanda Matsundela was there and says tens of thousands of South Africans pre-booked tickets ahead of today's release. Uh, I think we are about to hit record sales just after Fast and Furious. Uh, I think this morning we were sitting on about 57,000 pre-bookings, uh, which of which half of that, 50% of that is on IMAX 3G. So that tells you exactly the interest that is out there. And uh, of course I'm sure you know, our customers cannot wait. Uh, for this evening up until we launch. But most of all is that we're so lucky as South Africans because we get to see the film two days before the UK, which is unheard of. You know, so then it puts us on a different level as well. The Force Awakens will be best viewed in an IMAX cinema as director J.J. Abrams used IMAX cameras to shoot parts of the film. Therefore, the South African premiere was held at the launch of a six IMAX cinema in the country. Vice President of Theatre Development for IMAX in Africa and Europe, Giovanni Dolci, says this is an experience not to be missed. It's a very special experience. Uh, in IMAX is uh, the way the filmmaker intended to present the movie uh, for our format. So the interesting thing, the most interesting thing is that there, there are going to be sequences where the format opens up to the full IMAX aspect ratio. So the, the picture on screen is actually taller than in a normal screen. And that's because that sequence has been shot with IMAX cameras. So there is more to see, uh, actually a big percentage more of picture than in a normal cinema. But ultimately it's the fans that matter most. And they showed up in large numbers for the premiere. Most of them also came dressed up for the occasion. It, however, appeared as though Princess Leia and Jedi costumes were the most popular, but here and there a stormtrooper or somebody sporting a Darth Maul mask was seen. At the end of the day, nothing else mattered more to these diehard fans than the opportunity to be first in line to see Star Wars The Force Awakens. Definitely, looking forward to it. I've been waiting for it for years. Huge, huge Star Wars fan. Um, I think I watched the first movie when I was about five or six years old, so... 
been following it ever since. I'm here because I know he really loves the movie and J.J. Abrams is an amazing, amazing director. So if anybody can do justice and make me vaguely interested in Star Wars, it'll be him. Huge Star Wars fan. I waited for it for like 30 years. <laughs> about <laughs> it's, it's the best thing that's happened to me I think except for my wife so don't let her hear that <laughs> yes we are I didn't sleep yeah she hasn't slept like yet <laughs> And that report by Jacques Tienkamp. Going back in time to today in 2002, the Congolese government and the country's main rebel groups signed a peace accord in Pretoria, South Africa, in the hopes of ending Congo's four-year-old civil war. SAFM's Ike Patla takes us back to that day. She woke up to the best news probably since 1960 when the country gained independence. A watershed agreement was signed in Pretoria this morning which will see the installation of a government of national unity early next year. This brings to an end months of negotiations which started in Sun City earlier this year. Miranda Stratum has been following the negotiations and filed this report. The MLC's Olivia Kamitatu says there are many challenges ahead. For sure happy for my movement because it's not obvious to finish this process of political military option and to change to become a political party. But the DRC government's Theophilus Mbemba says it's a day to be remembered. Our president, General Major Joseph Kabila, promised to the Congolese people last year at the end that this year will be the year of reconciliation and unity of Congolese people. Provincial and local government minister Sidney Mufamadi, together with the UN, helped to facilitate this talk. For the people of the Congo is a moment of promise. This leadership, which was locked in discussions over a long period of time, brought the process of the search for lasting peace in the Congo to this watershed moment. And that was Dr. Sidney Mufamadi, former Minister of Local Government in South Africa, speaking after the signing of the DRC peace deal on this day in 2002. I suppose our economics update up next with Tabisa Lehoko. Thanks, Balungile. Investors are closely watching South African markets to see how they will respond to the U.S. Federal Reserve's raising of interest rates for the first time since the global financial crisis. The U.S. Central Bank has lifted its key short-term rate by a moderate quarter of a percentage point. Economists have warned that this could have a negative impact for emerging markets such as South Africa. The vote to increase the rates was unanimous, as Fed Chair Janet Yellen explains. The Federal Open Market Committee decided to raise the target range for the federal funds rate by one quarter percentage point, bringing it to one quarter to one half percent. This action marks the end of an extraordinary seven-year period during which the federal funds rate was held near zero to support the recovery of the economy from the worst financial crisis and recession since the Great Depression. South Africa's embattled airline, Skywise, is nowhere close to returning to the skies. Earlier, it said it wanted South Africans to bail it out after the airport's company of South Africa grounded it. The airline's flights were suspended earlier this month, 
co-chairperson Tabasam Kadir says she's angry with the way AXA has treated management of the airline. We are a small airline, fine, we cannot be compared to South African Airways. But still, we are the fourth airline of the country. All my complaint is with AXA. They could have given 48 hours because they were getting advance money for what they were, we were flying. They were not accumulating that. 200 people are sitting here without jobs today. The Zimbabwe Chamber of Mines says it is projecting a challenging year for mining companies in 2016. The Chamber says the mining sector has adopted use of multiple foreign currencies. This year, the mining sector is expected to record a negative growth of 2.5% and 3.4% in 2014. The Zambian Chamber of Mines President Nathan Chisimba says Zambia should maintain stable mining policies and taxes to avoid losing out to new lower-cost mines elsewhere. Zambia is Africa's second biggest copper producer. The country is facing its toughest economic difficulties in a decade. Nigeria's biggest power company, Akbin Power, plans to double its generation capacity to 2,640 megawatts over the next three to four years. CEO Dallas Peavy says that the utility company is looking at investments in solar energy and transmission lines. Power shortages are a major break on growth in Nigeria. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.96 in South Africa, 10.92 in Botswana. 1094 in Zambia, 66 British pound, 91 euro, gold 1067 dollars, platinum 868 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil 37 dollars, 17 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, my name is Tabiso Lohoku. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with local football news. Mamelodi Sundowns are the 2015 Talcom Knockout champions. This after beating Kazi Chiefs 3-1 at the sold-out Moses Mapida Stadium in Durban on Wednesday evening. Sundowns goalkeeper Dennis Oyango saved two penalties on the night to deny Kazi Chiefs any hope of winning the trophy. Sundowns scored through Leonardo Castro, Tabo Ntete, as well as Slompo Kekana to record their first-ever victory over Chiefs in a cup final. Oyango stole the show by denying Simpuwe Shabalala as well as Kalmadin Abra from the spot on, from spot in Durban with Abra later reducing the deficit with a goal in stoppage time. Kazichi said coach Steve Kombella. You don't know what would it take to get the ball inside the net. The number of chances we had, missing two penalties as well and I think the difference between the two teams was being clinical whenever a chance uh, prevailed. The first goal was a diagonal ball, failed to control the switch and a touch. The second one, a set piece, and the third one, the lack of marking in front of the box. But I strongly believe the match could have ended 5-3 in our favor, or 4-3, missing two penalties and the chances that we miss. I don't even know how Hamaldin scored the last one there. Meanwhile, man of the match, Dennis Onyango, had this to say.
Uh, obviously, we've won the, the trophy and uh, I'm, I'm excited for the goalkeeping department because they've helped me very much in this game to, to know where the ball was going on the penalties. Michel Platini has decided not to attend his hearing before FIFA's Ethics Committee in Zurich, scheduled for Friday. His lawyers say he chose to boycott the hearing after the verdict was already announced to the press by a spokesperson going against the presumption of innocence. Platini and FIFA President Seb Blatter are currently serving 90-day bans from all footballing activities after Swiss authorities opened a criminal investigation looking partly into the $2 million US dollar payment that Blatter made to Platini back in 2011, reportedly for work done for over a, dec- a decade earlier. The provisional ban is due to expire on the 5th of January, but both men risk being banned for life by the tribunal with the verdict expected on the 22nd of December. And finally, Swimming News Uganda emerged winners of the 2015 Kana Zone 3 Swimming Championships ahead of Kenya, South Africa, and Tanzania and Rwanda. The competition took place in Kampala, Uganda, this um, this um, or in Uganda. The event was Uganda's second international swimming championship tournament. Donald Rukara, the president of Uganda Swimming Federation, believes they picked up a number of positives from hosting the event. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Burundi dismisses criticism of its security forces and Somalia beefs up security after foiling a terror plot. It wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Khumuzo Mupulani, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Salif Keta with a song titled Tekere.
Tengo rote que 